and I have uh, just got back um, a little, well, Laura, Jacob and I, let me just add Jacob in there as well. Uh, we got back from uh, India. Um, we went there for, for two weeks at the end of January. And um, we were there with my father-in-law, actually, for about eight days. And it was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Uh, there's some photos just coming up behind you there. We got to uh, visit 30 church services in, um, in eight days. And uh, it was exhausting. But it was just amazing to see what God was doing there. Uh, at Nelson um, was a man that went to Bible college with my father-in-law in South Wales. This is well over 30 years ago. This is where I first met Laura. And he went back. He stood next to me in the pulpit there. Uh, he went back, five of them, and planted this church in Hyderabad in the southern part of India. And 30 years later, there's a network of 30 churches and 3,000 people in Gethsemane Ministries. So, so this guy is amazing. It was awesome to be with him. And it was a joy to be in India uh, preaching God's word. The people are so hungry for the word. There's a great hunger there. And God is moving in that land in a mighty way. The largest church in India is in Hyderabad. It's got 100,000 people there. And uh, the pastor of that church leads a very simple life. And he came through the Sunday School of Gethsemane Ministries. So God is really using this work in a powerful way. We're hoping to get some more opportunity to tell you more about what we did and what's going on there. Um, But uh, my wife has written a a couple of blogs uh, on it already. You can find them on our website. It's laurathomasauthor.com. So if you want to know more, please come and ask us. We'd love to tell you what we did. Or just visit her website and uh, you'll find out a little bit more then. Now, any trip to uh, India wouldn't be complete without a trip to uh, South Wales on the way back, the homeland. There we go. Look at that. Fantastic. Uh, That is Cardiff Castle. We went to see my mum. She lives there. My sister's still there and uh, all my nephews and nieces and uh, uh, all our old friends. So we had a super time in Wales. This is Cardiff Castle. It's right in the middle of the city. It's right in the heart of the city. You can't go to Cardiff and not go to the castle. It's just simply awesome. For those of you who don't know, that is the Welsh flag. Uh, blowing on top of that, uh, that flag, uh, flagpole there. And um, on that flag, there is a dragon. And uh, last Sunday, it was uh, March the 1st, St. David's Day. Thank you all for remembering. Um, my mailbox was full of leeks and daffodils and, and Welsh cakes not. It was a joke. Thanks for laughing. We've um, got rental laugh over here. This is fantastic. Um, but anyway, St. David, for those of you who don't know, killed that dragon on the flag, and that is really cool. So these, these, these castles, they're, 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 they're situated all over Wales, and they were built by the English, I love this, because of the marauding Welshman. Isn't that fantastic? So every time, every time I'm a complete nuisance to my wife, I can remind her that I'm a marauding Welshman. And uh, anyway, that probably isn't a good excuse. Um, I wonder if you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 11 and 12. I'm glad that Glenn's given me this opportunity to speak to you. I'm not glad that he's ill, because I'm sure you'd sooner him here this morning than me. But, but anyway, we've got two weeks here. Glenn's given me two weeks. Um, Pass, uh, Passover, Easter is early this year, January, the f- uh, January, April the 5th. We will be celebrating uh, Easter Sunday and um, it comes easy early this year, so I thought this might be a good little sermon series, just two weeks, uh, to focus our minds towards Easter uh, and the celebration, and we would do it from the Old Testament, the Passover. Um, uh, so it, if you've got uh, Exodus chapter 11 there, we're going to be reading in just a minute. Um, 
But what we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks is um, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard. And by hard, I don't mean academically hard, okay? I'm uh, a public school educated, British, minimal, okay? So th- hopefully nothing too complicated. What I'm talking about here is hard for us to accept, particularly in our culture. And um, we're going to be looking at a number of the attributes of God. In particular, we're going to be looking at God's uh, at justice and his righteousness. And these are two interchangeable ch- terms. Justice and righteousness in the scriptures are interchangeable ch- terms. Justice means moral equity. And by equity, I mean that quality of being fair and impartial. That's what equity is, fair and impartial. Any of you who have kids here this morning know how difficult it is to be fair and impartial with your children. Equitable in the way you distribute justice when required, reward when required. Any of you have ever been in a a situation where you have been a judge or an arbitrator or your, your decision has been final in something will know that it's very hard to be just and equitable. Now, the, the opposite of justice, equity, would be iniquity, okay, which is, which is immoral or grossly unfair behavior. And so judgment is the application of fairness to a moral situation. God is also merciful. He's also compassionate and he's also good. And so we've got to weigh that attribute against his justice and righteousness. He's he's a God who is merciful, he's a God who's compassionate, and he's also a God who is good. A.W. Tozer defines God's mercy in this way. It's an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature, which disposes God to be actively compassionate. And what that means is God is, is by his very being, actively compassionate. Compassion flows from God's goodness. And what we will see this morning as we look at the Passover is that God has always been merciful towards mankind. I want to emphasize that at the start. God has always been merciful towards mankind, and he will always deal in justice when his mercy is rejected and despised. Do you know what? The Old Testament has over four times more weight of material on the subject of mercy than in the New Testament. The New Testament develops that theology more, but the weight of material is in the Old Testament. So often we read it and we're like, oh, it's a, it's a gospel of gore back there, all this sacrifice. And, but we'll see that all the way through, God is trying to show us that he is merciful, compassion, Unjust. So let's read a few verses from, um, uh, we're going to read chapter 11, and we're also going to read a few verses from chapter 12 uh, um, as well. Uh, You know when you're in a care group of over 40s, because everybody brings their Bible and nobody uses it, uh, because they all put their phones on instead. So you're welcome to put your phones on instead. I bought these readers. I'm going to put them on now. You are all going to become blurred, and my page is going to become sharp. Anyway, let's, let's give this a go. Okay. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt 
by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my words, my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. We're going to read a bit more in Exodus chapter 12. Now it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person will, will eat. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts." Do not leave any of it until morning. If some, of it, if some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn man and animal, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then down to verse 31, just to finish. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have required. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go and bless me. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was journeying towards the River Jordan. And as he approached the River Jordan, John the Baptist was there baptizing. And he pointed when he saw Jesus coming and he said these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what did John what the Baptist was saying in that burst of praise is this, The Savior is here, the one who would come and fulfill all that was promised in the Old Testament has come, God's lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world, is here, hope for this poor world. And today we will be looking at, at these two chapters of the book of Exodus and hopefully seeing something of the parallel of this important passage with the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see that God 
is a God of redemption, that he is the redeemer, that he is the one who can not only give us life physically, but more importantly, give us life spiritually and take us home to that promised land, that place where he himself is, heaven, that place which is far better than Canaan, even in its greatest time. However, at the moment in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, we are in the midst of plagues, and it seems anything but good news. So how did we get here? How did we get to where we are in this passage? Quick history lesson here. About 1,860 years before Christ, God came to Abraham and promised him that he was going to make him into a great nation. And he had no children. And eventually he had a child called Isaac uh, when his wife was approaching 100 years old. And Isaac grew up and had two sons called Esau and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, and his favorite son was Joseph. Do you remember the story? He favored Joseph, and um, he perhaps wasn't equitable in the way in which he he dealt with his children. He made him a coat, and, and over the years, his brothers began to hate him. And they fabricated this plan where they would stage his death, but really what happened was Joseph was sold into slavery, and he was taken down into Egypt, And all through this process, this story, God has a plan to redeem his people. Joseph ends up in jail, and through his ability to interpret dreams, he's he's eventually rescued from jail by the hand of God, and he's given a really important position in the land of Egypt. And because of God's blessing on that land, Egypt became a superpower. They had food during time of famine, and so God provided a way of Jacob and the remaining family to come down into Egypt and to be spared from this terrible famine. And so what we have by the time we come to the end of Genesis is we have a a family of about 70 people and they've taken up residence in Goshen and they've been reunited with the lost brother Joseph. Over the next 400 years as we come up to Exodus chapter 1 and 2 and the beginning of Exodus, these 70 people multiply God blesses them. And by the end of, 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 of or where we are today, there's a nation of about 3 million people. That's nearly the size of, of BC. I think the population of BC is about 4 million people. And what, what he does, again, we see that in a miraculous way, he raises up a man called Moses. Pharaoh was, was jealous and fearful of the people. And he realized he had to do something to, to stop them growing. And so he came up with this evil, evil decree that, the first, that the, any male son that was born would be killed. And so Moses, as we know, was rescued. He was placed in the River Nile in a, in, in, in a basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And this guy, he, he's raised in Pharaoh's palace, given a, a great position of power. And again, we see God's hand working through history to redeem his people. Now, we haven't got time to go through each of the plagues in detail this morning. But in a, in, in a few moments, we will look at some of the important verses that deal with the ten plagues that were sent upon this nation. And as we look at these verses, we will see something of the solemnity of what the Bible teaches about the judgments of God and how he deals not only with nations, but individual men and women also. And as we come to Exodus chapter 11, we we will consider the necessity of the plagues, just in case you're thinking, were they in fact completely necessary at all? Why ten plagues? But not only the necessity of the plagues, but the uniqueness 
of this last plague, this final plague that came that we just read about. And what we will see is this. These plagues are not natural disasters that occur, but rather they are God's divine judgment on this civilization. And at the outset, I want to say this, that, that God will have his way in this world, even if he has to shake the whole world, as in fact he will do one day, as we're reminded in Second Peter, that he will not only shake the world, but the heavens also, and everything that is visible and physical shall be removed. And that is an awesome day. So why were these judgments, these plagues sent? Why did they come? Well, we find the answer to that back in Exodus chapter 5, verses 2. If you want to turn there, you can. It should come up on the screen. Um, In chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron had just gone into the presence of Pharaoh, and they just instructed him, let my people go. Let my people go. And Pharaoh replies in verse 2 with these words. He says this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So we see that this, in this verse that God had to intervene. He had to do something. Here was this, this evil, defiant, ungodly man who was simply standing against God and saying, we don't need you. I'm going to do it my way. And this is human nature, isn't it? It's my life. This is my nation. And we are a mighty nation, and, we do not, uh, and we're going to do things our own way. And besides, who is Jehovah? Who is God? We worship other things. We have our own things. And so it's necessary, not just in the days of Egypt and Pharaoh, but right the way through human history, God, in, God intervenes. He breaks into history, and he says, I'm God. And so God has to come in all kinds of different ways and break into our world to shake us from our security. And so firstly, God breaks into history to remind us that he is God, that he is in control, and that he will ultimately have his way. I'd like to challenge you this morning to stop and think. I love current affairs. Um, It's interesting what's happening in our world. And uh, God is shouting at our generation, isn't he? He's shouting at our generation. The Bible warns in the last days that there will be famines, that there will be natural disasters, earthquakes. We see all these things happening around us. It it, it reminds us that there will be crisis. There's crisis in Europe at the moment. There's crisis in Greece. And and, and there'll likely be financial crisis as a result of them coming out of the Eurozone. And as we look at our world today, we we, we have pollution. We have the ozone layer. We're being burned up. And God is speaking. In fact, he's almost shouting at our generation to hold on a minute. Hold on a moment. I am God. There is a God. And so all all these warnings are not sent by God because he is malicious or he's vindictive or he's mean or he's moody or anything like that at all. They are sent because God is gracious and his purpose is to awaken us that we might be saved. For he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the plagues were sent to remind them that he is God. Secondly, smaller Judgments are sent to prepare us for the great and final judgment that will come. Have you ever been told off for doing something that you shouldn't have done? And uh, in fact, you were continually told off for something that you shouldn't have done. And in the end, punishment came. It did happen to me um, numerous times, actually. Uh, It might surprise you that um, I was a little bit of a rascal in school. 
And uh, it doesn't surprise Laura because she knows me. But um, I wasn't mean or, or really naughty, just general mucking around and tomfoolery, probably like most of you guys in this room here. And uh, anyway, when I was growing up in Wales and going to comprehensive school there, we had this headmaster. We, we, we call them headmasters, principals, and his name was Mr. Roberts. Now, Mr. Roberts, he was an intimidating so-and-so. He was from North Wales, which was, like, intimidating in itself. And um, it, this is the end of the 70s now. He had wavy hair, and he had a quiff at the front of his hair like this. So we used to call him Rocco Roberts. So when he used to get mad, we used to call him Psycho Roberts. But this guy, he was just, there was something about him that was intimidating. Now, I hear in school today that actually the, uh, uh, the teachers are scared of the kids, uh, when I went to school, it was the other way around. The, the, the kids were, were, were afraid of the teachers. And this guy, he, he used to play rugby, and he used to play in the front row. And anybody who's played rugby knows that anybody in the play, f- plays in the front row has this unique physical phenomena. They, they, they don't have any neck. Their, their head, like, sits squarely on their shoulders. And this guy, he was so broad. It was, he, he, honestly, his shoulders were broader than John Casorso's. And... Um, he was as wide as he was tall, and he used to strut. He had a deep voice as well, like Anthony Hopkins. And he used to strut around the corridors, and he'd always, like, if there was messing around, going, go, you boy. No, no, you boy. You come here, boy. Like this, and he'd sort of march over. He knew you were in trouble with this guy. Anyway, we used to love, when we were in school, sliding down the banisters. We had a two-story school, and our, our, our staircases were just fantastic. You could walk up to the banister. That's the handrail, I guess. And you could sit on it like this, Adidas bag over your shoulder, and you could <laughs> right the way down. And it was like this half landing. You could land like this with a big thud on the ground. It would go boom, 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 all around the thing. And then you, you'd jump on the other side and go down. Well, some kid had caught his leg in the handrail and fallen and really hurt himself. So, so the, the, the warnings of no sliding down the banisters eventually came to severe warnings that you will be punished. You know, there's, like it's going to be game over if you get caught. Now, apparently, these rules apply to everybody in the school except me. And it was recess one day, and I had my bag, and I jumped on the, the first flight of stairs to come down to the half landing. And I slid all the way down, and I turned the corner, and I came down this butt cheek here to slide down the other one. And the minute I lifted my feet off the ground to let gravity take its course, Rocco walked into the the lobby like this. He stops. He sees me coming towards him. He does a double take like this, and he moves over like this to the end of the handrail. And I'm coming down like this, deer in the headlights going like, and I landed. And I'm like nose to nose, toe to toe with this guy was just... Oh, now I don't know if any of you are like me, but when I get in trouble, I do two things. The first thing I do is I talk way too much. The second thing I do, as you probably noticed, uh, the second thing I do is I start to giggle. Hands up anybody in the room who giggles when they get told off. Come on, come on, hands up. Nobody? I don't believe it. Yes, we got somebody back there. Okay. So I'm there and I went, morning, sir. Like, this is like... And uh, then I started to giggle. <coughs> like this. If you're in education, if you've got a kid that's giggling when you tell him off, please don't say things like, do you think this is funny, boy? Like, it's funny. I'm laughing already. And like, you laughing at me, boy? Like, this is, uh, you know, I was in so much trouble. Anyway, it was like down to my office. So I had to stand there outside his office while he waited to come and punish me. I was a complete warning exhibition to all the kids because all your mates are walking past. What do you do? What do you do? It's like, none of us. 
And the teachers would come past and he'd all go... <laughs> it was so humiliating. And I actually got off lightly because a, a couple of months before, I'd been in his room with a bunch of other guys and he threatened us with a cane. And um, he brought this cane down on the desk and the, all the papers went <laughs> like this. And this. I was terrified, obviously not enough to listen to this guy. But, but I thought, oh, I'm going to get it and I'm going to get a cane. This is really going to hurt. But uh, he let me off. I had to do 100 lines. And then the next morning in assembly, we used to have assembly. Um, he, he would say things like this. I caught a boy yesterday sliding down the banister. He shall be nameless, Lyndon Thomas, like this. <laughs> So, so everybody, the shame of, of being punished for something you've been warned about time and time again. The reason I put that illustration in there is, is uh, this is a, a little bit of a serious subject, but um, these small judgments that God brought on this nation are, are just heralds of that great day when the whole world will stand before God and then, of course, it will be too late. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? that we will have to give an account for our lives. How did I behave? How did I act? How did I spend my money? What were my priorities? All these things will be taken into his account. And so God in his mercy, although it never seems like it at the time, he breaks into history and he reminds us or warns us of that great day of judgment to come. Take, for instance, the great flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or, or the destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible tells us that these were judgments upon those people. But for the people who died as a result of those judgments, that's not their lot. They still have to face the final judgment as we will have to one day as well. And so judgments are in God's hands, and they come at his discretion. F.B. Mayer put it like this. He said, judgments are like the lightning flash at night, revealing the precipice yawning before the feet of the unsuspecting traveler. And what we have here is we have, a, we have a picture of a man, and he's walking, and it's dark, and he can't see anything, and he's next to the cliff. And suddenly the, the lightning bolt comes, and he realizes that, it's too late. I'm too close. I'm going to fall. And so the judgments come out of God's mercy to warn us of that great and final judgment still to come. Stepping up back a bit, let's, let's look at why God sent these t- ten plagues and what was so unique about this tenth and final plague. We've already said that the, the plagues were sent as, as a result of Pharaoh's defiant statement in chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And God says, you want to know who I am? Bang, bang, bang. These, these, these plagues come one by one on that nation. God answers him, you want to know me? I'll show you. But why didn't God just destroy him instantly with that defiant mark? Why didn't he just destroy him instantly? In fact, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 15, it says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you in the people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. What was God's purpose with these plagues? What was the first plague? It can be found in chapter 7. It was the plague of blood. Uh, it says that, that, that Pharaoh's heart is unyielding as a result of that plague. Uh, Moses touched the water. Everything became blood in the land. It must have stunk. And, 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 and Pharaoh's heart, it's unyielding. It says it's hard. And so Moses, by the power of God, he turns the, 
the, the, the, the Nile and all the, the water in the land to blood. And he says this, by, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. But in verse 22, it says that Pharaoh's evil magicians, in some secret, spurious, false way, they mimic this miracle. And so in 23, verse 23, we see that, that Pharaoh didn't even take this to heart. He's like, I'm out of here. Nice try. Yep. And so God sends another plague through, through Moses. And this time it was frogs gazillions of them. Uh, and again, we see the same pattern. Pharaoh's evil magicians, they in the same way duplicate the miracle. And so again, Pharaoh, encouraged by his musicians, he, he hardens his heart and he ignores the warnings and the voice of the Lord. The next plague is gnats and lice. Uh, and, and what we see now is the, is the, is the plagues, they're starting to intensify. Gnats come along, and, 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 and this time the, the, the magicians, they're unable to duplicate the miracle. And they go into Pharaoh in chapter 8, verse 19. I'd love to be a fly on the wheel first. Uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, we think this is the finger of God. That's what it says there. His magicians warned him. This is the finger of God. They start to realize who the Lord is, and they try to warn Pharaoh. But again, Pharaoh, he's completely unrepentant. And he hardens his heart. So it, it starts to intensify a little more now. We get flies. And God, this time, he starts to make a distinction between his children and the Egyptians. But again, Pharaoh simply hardens his heart and he refuses to listen. And so the plagues go on. And the, 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 the sort of first four, five plagues, they're like discomfort. They're irritating but, but by plague number six, it starts to get, like, really intense. Boils, okay? And I, I think to myself, by the end of the sixth plague, where everybody, if you've seen that movie that, that they came out before Christmas, uh, Pharaoh's all ugly, he's covered with these, um, these, these boils, and there was a lot of inaccuracies in, in that movie. But, but I'm thinking to myself, surely there's enough warning now after six of these plagues to make him stop and think. Surely it's about time he threw in the towel... And said, right, enough is enough. I'm going to let let you go. Moses had warned him. Aaron had warned him. His own magicians had warned him. God was warning him. And all the time he refuses to repent. He refuses to turn. What happens is there's three more plagues. Hail. It destroys the first two crops that they would have had in the land. This is a wealthy superpower that was brought to its knees over a series of days. Next comes hail, destroys everything. Sorry, it was hail. Next comes locusts. It destroys everything that was left green. They devour the whole lot in the entire land. After that, there's darkness, three days. Can you imagine having darkness for three days? How can you function as a country in three days with with complete darkness? You, You simply can't. They couldn't grow anything. They couldn't see anything. And, and all the time we see these warnings of God. And, and it reminds me of something, the misery that one man can bring on an entire nation. As I think back of the last 40, 50 years of my life, even the last 20 years, we look at guys like Slobodan Milosevic. Do you remember him? The misery that he brought on the Balkans. Saddam Hussein. The misery which he brought on that nation. More recently, in the Arab Spring... Colonel Gaddafi. He was strung up by his own people. And as the, as the evil of what he had done came out, he was a man that spent the, the, the wealth of a nation on himself, an evil man. 
That country should have been prosperous with its natural resources. And yet there is chaos and poverty and misery and disorder as a result of one man's sin. And so we come to the end of the sixth plague and we read these interesting words in chapter 9 verse 12. It says this, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have you ever stopped and wondered why the Lord hardened his heart? The answer to that question is this. By the end of the ninth plague, we read that the cattle have been destroyed, that that the hail and locusts have been destroyed, the crops, the superpower is no longer a superpower. They're broke. The country's in a mess. Pharaoh is still unrepentant and unmoved. And here we have a man who has had every opportunity to repent and turn and obey God. By now, there should have been enough warning along the way to make him stop and, and say, hold on a minute. This is ridiculous. But he didn't. And God, having given this man every opportunity to repent and find in him unrepentant, steps in and hardens his heart so that he may may make him a vessel of wrath or a warning exhibition to those nations around him. This is what it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Says the Lord, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Rocco made me a warning exhibition to everybody who walked past me in the corridor. God did the same thing to Pharaoh, but he only did it after he'd given him every opportunity to repent and, uh, and turn. And was this warning effective? It certainly was. If you turn to Joshua chapter 2, the people, they've been delivered from the nation. We know they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And eventually under the leadership of Joshua, they cross another obstacle, the Jordan. And they come into the land. And the first city they attack is Jericho. And they've sent out spies ahead to spy out and suss this all out. And there we have Rahab. And she was a harlot. And she's the ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ, the woman who turned from idols to serve the true and living God. This is what she said to those spies. She said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on earth below. You see, we have a a third aspect of the judgments of God and it's this. Firstly, they are sent to remind us that he is God. Secondly, they're sent to remind us of the great and final judgment. And lastly, they're sent because of his grace and mercy. You see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. And God sends redemptive judgments so that people may be saved. This is what it says. God speaking in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, because of my mighty hand, He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out of this country. And then in verse 6, it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And God did it as he judged one nation. He showed mercy to another woman. 
Rahab the harlot. He made Pharaoh a vessel of wrath, a warning exhibition, a man who would not repent so that he could save another person. God is a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, a God of compassion. You see, God deals in individual lives in a redemptive manner in order that, that, that the person may be saved. How did he deal with the people in Noah's time? Noah was 120 years building that ark. They had 120 years to look and repent. Nebuchadnezzar, God fired a warning shot across his bow and said, you repent. He gave him a whole year, and he didn't. So God flattened him. God brought judgment upon him. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, we read there that, that, that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And what we have here is a, a picture of a broad road that leads to destruction. And God, in his grace and mercy, he places a stone in the life of a person and trips that person up. That person might be you here this morning. God might have shaken your life in such a way that you came to him. It might be a bereavement. It might be a disaster, an illness, whatever it was. God brings these things sometimes into our lives in a redemptive manner, and they lead to salvation. And when God saves a person, he, he does this. He often shakes us to our core, and these things may be unpleasant, but all the time God is saying, hold on a minute. Hold on. You're not right with me. You have to get your life in line with me. You can't go on being your own pharaoh. That's what we are by nature. Every man and woman by nature are going their own way. And God breaks in and reminds us of that great and awful day when we will meet him. And so we come to Exodus chapter 11 and 12 to the last and terrible plague. The, the, the last plague is a punishment. The nine plagues that went before were warnings to Pharaoh and now God has given him enough warnings and he has to step in and punish because he's just. And God is saying, I, I'm a just God and I must punish those who disobey me. And no matter how merciful and patient and loving and kind he is, there comes that time when he says, enough is enough. You've had enough time. It's such a solemn thing, isn't it, when God speaks to people and they decide to switch off and ignore him. There is nothing to me on earth more frightening than people who harden their voice, that harden their hearts to the voice of God. If it were just a man speaking, fair enough. But when we seek to turn to the scriptures, God in his word is speaking to us. And there is nothing more dangerous than to keep turning, turning, turning that voice away, the voice of the Holy Spirit away and saying, no, I'm in charge, I will do it my way. And so the purpose of this great and awful plague is that all must learn, even the Israelites, that the wages of sin is death. We live in a society where it's long, wrong to punish, it's wrong to discipline, but the, the Bible says that the penalty of our sin is death. And so we see here in the Old Testament that this powerful message, uh, in all the blood sacrifices that there were, all the innocent animals that were slaughtered, God is saying this, sin is is serious. The wages of sin is death. The poor innocent animal is going to be killed as a result of my sin. And so God's great solution to our sin is the lamb, the Passover lamb, the, the lamb of God. In Exodus chapter 12, we can see how God tells them. He tells them to take this lamb, 
The lamb is at the heart of their forgiveness, the heart of their refuge. And here we see a shadow of the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. A male lamb would be taken with no blemish or defect, and it would be kept in the home for four days. I want you to think about that for a minute. wonder how the kids would have felt about having a lamb in the house of four days. There's tons of sheep in Wales. There's sheep everywhere. But they are really cute, particularly when they're small, little, little lambs. Can you imagine bringing a lamb into your house? I bet after day one, the kids would be attached to it, right? Four days, four days, that, that, that lamb was going to be kept in the house. Cute, fluffy thing. And then you tell me you're going to slaughter that lamb? My, my first reaction would be to say no. No. In fact, the whole idea of killing an innocent year-old baby lamb, it repulses me. But then I'm reminded that my sin repulses God. And the only way that God can forgive us is that blood cleanses us from our wrong. The innocent life is taken for the guilty. The innocent one is killed for the guilty one. And so death would be averted. And so when we come to chapter 12, we see the importance of the sprinkling of the blood. We can see that there, there is a way. There is a way that God can change his direction and death could be averted. We see that it was the responsibility of the Israelites to take some of the blood of the animal that had died and they were to put it on the sides of the doorpost and they would put it on the head of the door of the houses where they ate the lamb. That was their part. There would be no evasion of death if they did not do that. You know, the cynic in me says that there must have been those that scoffed at the whole idea. Ah, this is ridiculous. You mean I have to take a little lamb, slit its throat, put its blood on the doorframe? I wonder if, if some said, I'm not doing that. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. They, they would have died. It, it doesn't matter that they'd heard God's word. It doesn't matter that they slaughtered the lamb. It doesn't matter that they ate and took part in the summer. But unless they took some of that blood and went outside and applied it to the doorpost, unless they took it and said, I'm doing this for me and my household. I'm doing this. Unless they did that, they all would have died. Do you know, it's exactly the same when becoming a Christian. You might hear about Jesus. You might believe that he was the son of God who died on the cross. You might even uh, believe these things, all these things. But unless you've taken the blood and applied it, unless you are saying, Lord Jesus, I am the sinner you died for. And I believe that I deserve death and hell. I believe that you love me and I trust that in my heart, Uh, that you will be my Lord and Savior and that you will save me from death and hell. Some say, how stupid. Man from Nazareth lived 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, died on a cross, rose again. What rubbish. But it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, it's the power of God. How is it with you this morning? In the same way that the children of Israel sheltered behind the blood of the Lamb, are you sheltered behind the blood of Christ? Have you applied the blood? Can you say that you are washed in the blood of the Lamb? I've been cleansed. You have to apply the blood. You have to say, Jesus, I recognize that I am the sinner you died for. I make you Lord of my life. Come take control of my life. God will accept us because of the blood of his son. He will accept us. 
just take a, a saving look, as it were, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I believe today. Lord, make me your child this day. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll, they'll come up and, and play a couple more songs for us. And uh, I say, come up, let's pray. Father God, as we turn to your word, we declare that some of your attributes are difficult for us to understand, Lord, hard for us to accept, even in the culture in which we live. But Lord, this morning we declare that you are the only God, that you reign supreme, and that, Father, your, your goodness flows out of your very being. That although you're a God of justice and righteousness, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and love and goodness and grace. And so we come before you now, and, and in the stillness of this moment, we just pray that you would speak into our hearts, Father. For those of us who know you, Lord, we just thank you for the, the wonderful security of resting in the fact that you are just, that you are that you are righteous and the comfort that that brings us Father that you are a good God and that you loved us and you saved us Lord for those who don't know you Lord I just pray that that just these words from your scripture Lord would just burn in their hearts that today would be the day that they apply the blood that they say Jesus you did this for me I plead. Amen. Cause my faith to rise, stand out. 
had attention you are calling me to greater things and you will lift my head above the mighty waves you are able to keep me from stumbling and in my weakness you are the strength that comes from
Zoe. Linda, and I really want to thank you for the message. And I love the, the last lines, uh, just speak what is true. Um, I always wondered, in, in essence, why the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so I have a lot better idea now. Uh, that was just an excellent uh, explanation and, uh, and a great sermon. So um, if any of you has questions, um, w would like uh, additional prayer, uh, we'll stay as long as you want, uh, and we are here to pray for you. Uh, but the lobby is open, coffee's on, hot chocolate is on, uh, and just go and uh, love and serve the Lord this week. Uh, please remember to keep Glenn in your prayers, and uh, and Dave, <laughs> Dave Nolan too, uh, as they head off on a new adventure. So, maybe Scott, who maybe just heard about this today. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, God bless you. Thank you.